What's going on, everyone? Alex De Silva. And Lucy De Silva. Happy as Larry Group. Yep. I hope you are well. And welcome to another episode of The Feel Good Show. Would oh. you like to introduce our lovely guest? Yeah, I would, yes. Yeah. Um, tonight, we have Clorinda Puppage on our show. Uh, Clorinda is a counsellor and developer of the Survivors Voices Education and Awareness Project for the charity One in Four. Clorinda, welcome on the show. Hello, welcome. Thank you. It's so good to have you. So, yeah, so it's really great to have you here. And we're really, I know that we've we've met before and for people that don't, you know, that don't know who you are, give us a little uh, sort of overview of, of what you do with, uh, as, a, as a profession, and then let's talk a little bit about one in four as well. Great, thanks, Alex. Um, so, my name's Clorinda, and um, I've been working as a counsellor for the last four and a half years. Um, and, um, and, and for, for the last five years, I've been involved with the charity One in Four, um, developing the Survivors Voices Project, which is an education and awareness project. Um, around childhood sexual abuse. Um, my, my background, my professional background before I came in this direction was I worked in uh, healthcare communications. Um, so I worked um, a lot with the pharmaceutical sector and also with public health sectors and the voluntary sector. So I've sort of worked across the board. Um, and so I, you know, I have ex- experience of working with the media and working on various communications projects. So when I started to work in this area, um, in the, the area of childhood abuse, it felt appropriate to, to bring my skill set to, to this, this particular work, um, which has been fantastic, very, very interesting, very rewarding and uh, very illuminating. Yeah. How did you get into, I know that you, you sort of covered um, working in, in different industries, but was there something that sort of attracted you due to this and to, to working in, in such a, a specific field as well? Yes, of course. Um, so a long time ago, a friend of mine made a documentary that was a very successful documentary called Chosen, um, and it was around childhood sexual abuse um, in a boys' prep school. Um, I think it was one of the early ones and it, it was successfully broadcast in the UK. And um, he, he he's always kept that film on his website so that as an educational aid uh, for, for people to view. And one day I was chatting to him and I said, you know, I, I've often thought I would love to do some Samaritans work. And he said, well, look, go and look on our website because there are organisations that work around sexual abuse. Have, have a look and see if there's anything there for you. So that's what I did. And I found myself volunteering to an organisation called NAPAC, which mm-hmm. is the National Association of People Abused in Childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just sort of a light bulb experience, really. Um, I think I started there in 2009. And as part of going on board, they give you training to help you prepare yourself for the kind of calls that you might get and training particularly to understand the grooming process, mm. to understand a lot about the types of callers and the state callers are often in and mm. how you will manage difficult calls. Um, and then they let you loose on the, on the line really. And, um, it, I did it for just over a year. Um, and, 
I just learned so much about people's experiences around childhood abuse. And it was during my time that I was on the line that I decided, yeah, um, I, I am going to train to be a counsellor. It's something that had often occurred to me, I've been interested in, but I hadn't really taken the step to do it. But by the time I was taking those calls, I realised, yeah, that's what I'm going to go and do. Um, so that's how I started to make the shift. I mean, I've carried on doing some communications work um, alongside, but that's how I decided to make the shift to start training. And then once I started training, um, you know, other, other opportunities emerged and that's how I, you know, the, the survivors voices came along, along the way. But the, the helpline experience was fascinating because you hear so many different stories mm. and what I came away with is this topic is not being well managed. Mm. And I, I was really surprised I had no idea how difficult it was. People, people found it to get the help that they needed. Mm-hmm. I was oblivious to that. I, I made the, the assumption, you know, this is a well-understood topic but yeah. you know, in, in professional services, but it, it seemed to me that people were having very patchy experiences. Um, and, I, you know, there are a few calls, many of the calls I've forgotten, but there are a few calls that really stick with you. Um, mm. And they, they touch me very deeply. And I just thought well, I want to add my ability to support people um, to this, this issue. So how did, that, how did you come across One in Four then as a, as a charity? How did you find them? And, and then how did, the, how did you get the Survivors Voices project off the ground? Talk a bit about the background of that. Yeah, I mean, I was aware of one in four because of being on the NAPAC helpline. You have a list to all the, the services that are available nationally. And, of course, I could see what was available in the London area. So I remember, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, they look interesting. Um, but it wasn't until a few years later when um, the Office of the Children's Commission published that they were going to do an inquiry into CSA in the family. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one of the things that they said about uh, their work was that there was a shortage of survivors' voices in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, they announced the study and said that this was a particular issue. And I, it sort of just got me thinking. And professionally, I had attended trainings with Christiane Sanderson, who is a trustee of One in Four and also a um, you know, very, very well-respected trainer in the area so I spoke with her about the idea mm. and spoke with the director of one in four who immediately thought yeah we've got something here there's definitely something here yeah. um, and they opened their doors to me to to start to see how to develop such a project and in in the early days we played around with a few ideas yeah it, it didn't immediately give birth as survivors voices as 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 we now know it um so initially you know actually it was going to be more around me doing interviews with survivors Mm -hmm. but then um I took some advice from a specialist in um in in writing and in in personal writing who who encouraged me to flip it and actually to say no no allow just facilitate the survivors to tell their story because inevitably if I had interviewed people, I would have a pro forma of questions that I wanted to find out about. But the chances are the thing that you wanted to tell me or somebody would want to tell me, they'd think about half an hour later. 
Yeah. I'd said that. Oh, why, why did I say that? Yeah. So that's why where, you know, we decided, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we will give the survivor back their voice, which is why it ultimately became called Survivor yeah. Voices. Okay. Um, and so then what happened? So I had approached 104 and um, they were really interested in the idea. And then they actually, we together through some of their contacts, we made contact with the then commissioner, deputy commissioner of the Children's Commission, who supported the concept, but obviously couldn't, you know, endorse the concept. Right. And and so we got going from there. Yeah. Um, it, it's just an incredible, like, it's it's such an incredible project to incredibly brave to be involved in, to incredibly courageous to, to, to put it forward as a possibility of something that's going to take off the ground. Because, you know, with, CSA, with CSA, the problem is with it is that people don't want to talk about it. And, and thus the, you know, the, the, the background of, of, you know, the perpetrator, for example, is, is that the, the, the victim is silent. So to, to bring a project like this into the light and for, and asking survivors to come forward and to give their accounts of their personal and, you know, really raw and, and painful, emotionally painful accounts to, to bring it into the light, you know, it's just, uh, I would say a groundbreaking project, um, and you know because I I obviously had a bit of an involvement with one in four, but having written myself, you know, I know that it's very very cathartic to write and to write about my experiences and to to be really honest about how CSA impacted my life. Um, what would you say was the impact of the project on the participants who took part as writers in, in the report? Well, I mean, I've done the f- gathered feedback from the, the writers. We've done two reports now. We've done the one about survivors' experiences of, of CSA within the family context and how that's impacted their, their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one that we've done most recently is Survivors' Voices of CSA and addiction. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of overlap in, in both sets of stories. And then there's some difference. Mm. Um, but the feedback generally has been, you know, incredibly positive. Um, you know, that, 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 that p- people who've taken part have told me how much it's actually helped them shift and move forward from their own stories that somehow seeing their story in print and external to themselves has helped them just take a step in, in their own personal growth. Mm-hmm. So one participant in the previous project had said, you know, each year I, I grow a millimetre, but this year I grew a centimetre. Wow. So yeah. it's a significant. Um, and another participant had told me that she found, well, that she found that she'd become more assertive. So mm-hmm. although she, you know, her abuse was in the family context, she found that although she was still in contact with her family, that she was standing up for herself a lot more, you know, mm-hmm. her, her experience did matter. Mm-hmm. And that, that, so some, that in, in finding her voice on paper with us, she found her voice in, you know, in her life within her family context. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, another told me how it's, it freed her in that, that she had been living in the shadows metaphorically, you know, riddled with shame yeah. and that seeing her story in print um, 
And she'd shared her story with some people in her family through the development of it, actually helped her enormously. And so as a result, she felt, you know, she stepped out further into, into her own life, into the light in, in, in a really positive way. So, so, you know, lots of benefits, really lots of benefits, very, very individual. Um, you know, one person in the, the recent project, took the time to phone me um you know he wrote to me and said could could I could we speak because he just wanted to tell me you know how it felt to get that document in his hand and and how moved he felt and you know and validated and supported and you know incredibly important and I think what's what's you know thank you for your kind words about the project I mean what's different to us and and it is a brave project because it does ask people to try and write very, very difficult experiences. And we're not asking about the abuse. That's absolutely not what we're touching on. We're only talking about the impact and how it's shaped people's lives. Yeah. And the the reason I particularly wanted to do that was because the media is very focused on the happening yeah. horror of the happening mm. and to me that's a very small part of it mm. because it's the legacy mm. I'm not sure if that's the right word but it's the impact in people's lives that's that that's what therapy that you know that's what we're doing when we're working in therapy is unpicking yeah the impact so that the you know the client can make sense of what happened to them Mm. and recognize the meaning that they made about it that in many cases is is erroneous you know so they've you know in many cases blamed themselves for what happened yeah uh you know i i think you know what you said about being validated as as a person you know having had an opportunity to to write for the report these you know the individuals that took part um it, that is like we spoke about earlier that validation is is the validation that you know they not they didn't necessarily get when they were growing up and when they were going through this so to then you know, a years later to, to be given the opportunity to have that voice and to be given that, you know, as it says, survivors' voices, to, to give them the the vocalization that they wasn't able to have. It's it's huge. And you know, you were saying about the lady that that told you about the effect that it's had on her with being able to put boundaries in place of her family. Uh, also something that she wouldn't have learned growing up because uh, when CSA happens in the family environment, you know, the, there is, there are no boundaries, which is a really common knowledge. And, you know, we've touched on uh, the survivors and, and their part that they played in it. Um, and you, you've touched on a little bit about the, the film, the, the, in relation to the CSA and cause a uh, result of um, addiction. Um, if you, can you talk a little bit more about, the the impact that the film and the project had on the professional world and the reach of the people that you were trying to to get this in front of and and the feedback that you've had from from that so far yeah i mean the the film is really very early days Mm. um so you know the film came with some funding that we got from the national lottery um and the film is basically as you know um 
is around survivors talking about their, their, you know, the impact of CSA and addiction, but but their struggle to get help. Um, and the reason we chose to do this was that you know the evidence we had was that you know from our clients um, and from some consultations we did that the CSA is not very well addressed in the addiction field, mm. and so. The sort of the primary objective was to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. So we know that there's such a range of different um, services from the private sector to the voluntary and statutory sector. Um, and in some cases, there is good support. And, you know, we don't want to, to, to deny that. But in many cases, this is a topic that's just uncomfortable and difficult and one that classically we just want, you know, people just want to push to one side. But, but our experience is that actually it's a great opportunity to take, you know, when people come into recovery services, it's a great opportunity to not necessarily do the work on the underlying trauma, but it's a great opportunity to signpost people or make them aware, you know, we say make the link, make them aware that if they've had this as part of their history, it is something that they would benefit from processing because it will be impacting them in a myriad of different ways and so you know and it could be very much the driver of the addiction in the first instance not not exclusively there may be a myriad of other factors but it is likely to be the underlying trauma or an underlying trauma Mm -hmm. so the film that we've made I mean it's really just beginning its journey um and it's a sensitization you know it's to it's to build awareness and sensitize projects to actually how could you be addressing this issue better so you know to show to your key workers to show to service providers you know within in services to have the conversation how are we as a service managing csa what do we do do we have a lead in the service who actually you know who's our csa expert that we contact when when any of our clients disclose are we encouraging our clients to disclose are we supporting our clients when they do disclose how are we supporting them are we directing them to services so and and the services are i mean you know there's an umbrella organization in the uk called the survivors trust and many charities such as one in four fall are members of the Survivors Trust. So there's a website and they, they give details of all the, I think it's over 140 some charities around the country working with CSA, all with the, uh, different sizes. Um, you know, some, some just two or three people, some as big as one in four, some maybe, you know, bigger and more established. Um, so the film, the film's just been launched. Um, and now we're starting the journey to, to dis- disseminate the film, both at conferences where you'll get a greater proliferation of professionals, but also through you know, individual contact to particularly addiction services um, so that they can start having their converse- com- conversations with their senior management team to start to address it. Um, and then we will find ways to de- cascade it into homeless organisations um, and other projects that are working with people where there is addiction, where there's likely to be the underlying trauma. So um, 
you know, the feedback I've had, which is your question, has been extremely positive. I've been really very, very positive um, from people, from people saying, my God, you're, every one of those participants has told my story. Mm. So there is somebody who's seen a film who's absolutely be, you know, works for in recovery, but is absolutely a survivor and recognizes all those clients and was just so thrilled. Also, because to see the film, also what we've done with the film is we've put it in the context of the ACE studies, the Adverse Childhood Experience Studies. Um, I don't know how much you're aware of those, but this research now is gaining traction in the UK. Um, it's research that came out in California 21 years ago, um, and we're now starting to recognise that the trauma in childhood and these adverse childhood experiences really, really do have a long-term impact on mental and physical health and are predeterminants for addiction. Um, so, so putting the film in that context has been great. Um, and so showing the film within services, again, very positive feedback. Great to start the conversation. They, they recognise it's difficult and so this is a conversation starter. Yeah. Well, this also, this might be, uh, I don't know if this is a question that you can answer. It, I, I think it might be more of your, what is your personal view around this? I mean, you said that the the effects of, uh, I'm paraphrasing what you said, but the effects of, of CSA, you know, can have extremely long-term effects, you know. And, and talking as a survivor myself, I have no doubt that, uh, there's not it's not necessarily a conscious thought every single day that comes to my mind but I am very aware that I will continuously recover from that as well as my addiction which was on top of my CSA M my question is do you think that someone who has experienced CSA as a child do you think that it neurologically it damages something in the brain so that because that causes such a severe trauma that is carried on for the rest of of that person's life gosh that's a it's a question i i'm not sure whether it causes neurological damage i couldn't i'm not experienced enough to be able to know that mm. but i think it definitely sets up internal um ways of relating mm. and it's those internal ways of relating and of being and often of being out of contact contact with the self, which I think definitely sets up a path. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, as you say, being a survivor, it's a, it leads to long term impact. You know, I don't think I think people are survivors for the rest of their lives, but I think that once the the understanding has come. Um, and the managing of the trauma symptoms has come, then the impact lessens, but it never goes away. And there will always be triggers throughout the life cycle, whether it's triggers because, I mean, you've, you know, you have a child, so triggers because your child is getting to an age where things happened to you, triggers because there's family gatherings and you, you know, it brings up memories, you know, just triggers. You might be in, in areas of, of the city where bad things happen to you, you know, you know, big, big events in family. There may be, be funerals, people dying, 
that will bring up stuff. So it, it's never going to go away, um, but it can be managed. Once it's understood, it can be managed. And that's what I see through the clinical work is that as clients, you know, work through um, their trauma and understand what happened to them and reframe it. I mean, there's a lot of the work is reframing because inevitably many, many clients see that they were, you know, erroneously see that they were responsible for what happened when they weren't. They were, you know, just a vulnerable child that these things happened to. And, um, but they, in, in, you know, inevitably wrongly assume it's something that they've done that triggers it. Um, or, you know, as, uh, as came through in another piece of work I did with the previous film that I made with NHS England, which was a more of a confidential film. Um, you know, one of the survivors was talking about how her body reacted to the abuse and, and that, so that she, although it's abuse, her body actually quite liked the inappropriate touch, you know, and all the confusion that that sets off. Um, so the, I've slightly, you have to go back to the question. I've slightly lost my way. <laughs> uh, no, it was just, it was just looking at the, you know, w- w- do you think that the trauma that is caused through CSA is something that is, you know, affects the brain the same as some people have views of what addiction could be, that it could be a disease that is, you know, centered in, in the brain, but it's a brain disease. And I'm wondering if, you know, those who, having those two on top of each other is, you know, it's a really difficult thing to, to, to get recovery from. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting one actually, because, and I was just sitting here listening to to, to you both having that discussion. And for me, I always look at things on, on the opposite side where, you know, you both sort of look at things from a, a clinical perspective and therapeutic and you kind of go deep into, you know, sort of the, the root and the effects that it can have, whether it's short term, midterm or long term, Whereas for me, I sit here and think, what could could there be healing from this? You know, and and I think, you know, could especially for again for for us, the the listener will be potentially a a survivor or potentially somebody who's experienced this. You know, the 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 listener now could be, you know, somebody who has been completely shut off from this. You know, and and they think what can I do? You know, is there a way out of this for me? You know, and, and what I have seen having not kind of gone through, you know, the sort of the, the, the real kind of traumatic side of things, I've experienced some form of, of, of abuse as well. And, and it's, um, it, it is tough because as you said, it, it does leave a scar, you know, it is one of these things that it just leaves a mark and, and every now and then there is a trigger, but um, what I'm interested to, to kind of get your, your viewpoint in I've seen through the the film and you know and, and being blessed to, you know, to, to to have Lucy as, as somebody who 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 has kind of had to overcome so much and you know and I've had the I guess I've had to work through a few things as well and then realised that you know I think there is always you know a light at the end of the tunnel and I guess for for listeners although and and I always like to reiterate reiterate this is that. This is not a quick fix, you know, when, when you're going into something, when you're finding a solution for addiction or especially when you're looking at trauma, like, you know, with CSA, when it's child abuse and, and stuff like that, these things are, are, are a lot deeper. 
you know, and then they can really leave, uh, you know, damaging scars. But do you think with the right level of work, you know, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, that these people can go on to, to live happy lives and, and like us, you know, get married and have children and, and to be able to, to be uh, a modeling example that, you know, although these things do happen in life, that we do have a choice that we can overcome, you know, and be able to move forward with life. Absolutely, Alex. I think it's such an important message. Yes, I think, you know, I think post-traumatic growth is definitely possible. I mean, we see it all the time in the, in our client work. Um, but I think it's just something to be aware of that it's, you know, that at times things can, can get triggered. But I know that, that, that through the, the, you know, the counselling and the processing of trauma and CSA, that even if things get triggered, the ability to restabilize is so much quicker. So the, you know, it's ability to go, Oh, I see. I know what's going on. I recognize this. Okay. You know, and to, to ground practice all the grounding stabilization techniques that may have been learned or, you know, looking at reframing and seeing, you know, okay, what, what's the interpretation I've made here? And so putting things back into context. But no, definitely post-traumatic growth is really, really important, is really, really, really possible. You know, healing is possible, but it takes time. Yeah. It just takes time. And I think one of the things that, you know, comes through again in some of the accounts in the narrative, you know, in the, in the stories is the, 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 the loss of years. So there's the, there's the loss of years because there's been the underlying trauma, there's been the childhood sexual abuse or whatever the trauma is. Then there's been the addiction, which it is initially, you know, and, and this is what came through in the film as well. You know, you said it, you know, Lucy, the, the, you know, actually I'm glad I found drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol. And this comes through in some of the other stories because it, it is yeah. a safe place to be. Mm. until it's not yeah and, you know and that's you know that's the sort of the double bind of it but this is it is a safe place to be and um it does it does quell the feelings it does that's why we caught the called the report and the film numbing the pain it yeah. it, it does that for a while until it then it morphs and creates its own problems mm. yeah yeah, um, the thing isn't it that we we find, and, and I'd like to ask you this. Um, you kind of touched on it a little bit about the, you know, in the years of work that you've done, you know, being on the other line, on on the other end of a phone, you know, having to kind of receive those calls. I mean, that is something that you know, even the amount of training you probably get, you probably can't prepare yourself for for reality, right? I guess when you're trained in the field is one thing, when you experience reality is another. But through your years of experience, what's been the kind of the, the sort of the common theme with, with, with individuals and kind of like with, with their experiences and, and how is there been, um, I'm talking more from a journey perspective, you sort of touched on, you know, they have the experience around, you know, the, the child abuse and then often or not, they'll find some form of solution where it will be drinking, drugging, you know, whatever it may be, self-medicating, um, to then numb that pain because they don't have another solution. They think that that's the only way around. And then after that, there's always seems to be another way that we kind of go around. Do you find that that seems to be the kind of the common theme or do people then go in, in, in different ways? Or do they, do they, I guess my question is, do they always end up in the same place? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And if I think back to the first Survivor's Voices project, because I didn't know what was going to come through the stories. And actually, 
drugs and alcohol were very common in many of the stories, but not in all of the stories. I mean, there was there was a fair bit of eating disorders as well, which I see as another way to... Um, and then there were people who literally, um, you know, became workaholics. So they found, you know, they found other ways or they isolated. So they found other ways to sort of to manage the discomfort. Mm. Let's make no pretense about it. You know, CSA, the the figures on CSA are massive, really, really massive. Um, And not all survivors are in therapy or have even done therapy. Um, you know, many of them are managing their level, their coping mechanisms, whether they be addictions of one form or another. Many of them are very in very successful jobs. You know, the, the fact that you can dissociate from your feelings actually means that you can make a very good, you know, surgeon or, you know, you could, make, you could be very successful in many other places. So, you know, what there's definitely a, coping mechanisms so that's what you're asking for about commonalities coping mechanisms are, com- are common but they're they are always of not feeling let's put it that way or or heightened feelings so extreme you know i've come across survivors who who've been fanatical runners or you know they push themselves to limits yeah. so they can feel because they've suppressed their feelings so this is another way to feel their feelings yeah. But one of the things that I think comes through really clearly in both accounts and, it, and is in the analysis that Christiane Sanderson, the CSA expert, did for us is, is shame. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really common. So, and denial. Mm-hmm. So, sh- you know, shame is something that affects all survivors, which makes it so hard for survivors to, to come forward and look for help. Um, and, and then denial because they don't actually want to say it happened. I mean, saying it happened to you is such a difficult thing. Once those words are out of your mouth, you cannot take them back. You know, so, you know, that it becomes a thing in itself. So I think, you know, I, when I'm working with clients who sometimes, you know, they've come to the surface, but they're not even sh- Am I, should I really be in this service? You know, I'm not sure. I think I've had an experience. I'm not sure. Um, so, you know, but the definitely coping mechanism is common, shame and, um, and denial. But shame can be worked through. I mean, the beauty of doing the work is shame is such a key thing that happens for survivors. But once we start to focus on what happened to them with compassion and empathy, then the shame can start to dissipate. Um, you know, and it takes time, you know, it has to be worked with very sensitively, but it takes time. And the great thing is that this knowledge is, you know, is, is all here now. We're much more aware of shame um, and working with shame. And, and something to say, you know, for the survivor that people talk about shame and sexual abuse, but the survivor will have their own shame of what happened to them. But they will also have the shame of their perpetrators because there is something that happens that's kind of called the the transfer of responsibility. So inevitably, on top of their own experiences, they will then pick up the shame of the perpetrator who's behaving shamelessly. They will take that and say that they will carry that internally. 
Um, and then sometimes, you know, there'll be shame within the family system that they will, you know, that's denying what's going on. So even if the child has tried to speak out and isn't met with the proper and appropriate response, then that's another level of shame and shutting the child down again. And so they're staggering around with this shame, which is why they need to numb the pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just picking up on what you're saying around the shame and the, the how debilitating that is. You know, when I um, addressed my CSA in in treatment, um, the, the the trauma program that I was really really lucky to do was the Peer Melody Trauma Program, which is based on uh, the foundations of codependency, and the. Um, and I, I personally would not recommend someone to do it unless they, they have, if they, if they have, if they, if they struggle with addiction, then they, they must have some form of abstinence and recovery from it. Because what we had to do in those very safe groups of individuals that were there and the people that were leading the groups as well was to give back that shame. That was one of the exercises we had to do. And to do that, it involved some shouting, throwing, screaming, all sorts of, of exercises that was releasing that shame that you very, very, um, you know, eloquently touched on by saying what you're saying, that because it's so true, as a survivor of CSA, we absorb so much shame, our own shame, the perpetrator shame, as you're saying, and, you know, anybody else who is involved in the the CSA that's happening if it's in the family or if it you know wherever it's coming from and that I know for myself that having absorbed all of that I know that I was carrying it around for so many years so then to have been given the opportunity to to release that in the way that I was was it was so freeing but you know what it did to me Clarinda it made me ill physically it made me ill after leaving treatment from that trauma program it came out in a physical way and Mm -hmm. that's you know and I think that you know we've also said about the 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 recovery process from this is so long and it's so continuous and that's why I think some people you know they do resist uh, you know bringing it out and 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 saying that it's happened to me because to think that there's any kind of light at the end of the tunnel or any kind of recovery from that it it, it felt like it was out of my reach yeah of course it does and the thing is I guess it's so hard as well isn't it because at the beginning you don't feel like that at all and as you kind of described it it's you know the it's never easy is it the 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 journey coming into recovery is not easy going through something like that you know is the experience itself is what you just described there it made you physically ill you know Mm. so that's something which you know clearly says there is a lot you have to process and a lot that you have to let go of. I just want to ask a quick question. Um, why is it, and whether you know the answer to this, it's just, it's just something that popped in and I just want to make sure I don't forget. Why is it that the, the sufferer carries the shame of the perpetrator? Well, I think because the perpetrator is doing something shameless. And they are, they've, maybe they've gone unconscious in what they're doing, but they, they are behaving shamelessly. And somehow there is this transfer of responsibility. So energetically, the, the victim, child, survivor takes this on. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and they know, you know, especially when they know there's something wrong. I mean, the child doesn't necessarily know it's abuse initially, but they may, they pick up cues that, that they know it's wrong mm-hmm. um, from things that the perpetrator may have said to them or the way they behave or, you know, they only do it when they're in the house, the perpetrator's in the house on their own with the child, um, or, you know, or just, just ways the perpetrator's behaved. So the child knows instinctively it's, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And so that then feeds internally itself. Yeah. Um, so they, again, that, that makes the child just feel even worse about themselves. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's what's so awful about sexual abuse is it's the pernicious attack on the self that happens as a result. Yeah. So, you know, inevitably survivors see themselves as bad, as very flawed and wrong people. Yeah. When they're not, they are people who bad that bad things have happened to. Yeah. You know, and it's it's this sense of feeling incredibly flawed. That you know that 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 I am a bad person. I am a wrong person, rather than I, you know, that I'm I was innocent. Yeah. And so you know, again, that's something we work on during the therapeutic process. And it sounds like Lucy, what you did with the peer melody model sounds incredible to have that opportunity, and it comes with a price. But the but but I imagine that's just suppressed emotions coming out mm-hmm. that made you feel unwell. Do you think there's a level of of um, of protection from the child if they observe, observe um, absorb that shame? You know, because kids don't like to they don't like to see people you know um, sad or they don't want to see people hurt. You know, do you, is there an element of that as well? I'm just kind of asking the question because I, I think again, just for for maybe somebody who's listening, sometimes you know, you know, kids can protect. They can be quite protective, don't they? And as you said, I know that happened with, you know, with 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 Maddie and with Brandon. You know, when when they found out I was in recovery. You know, Brandon and I had a conversation quite openly where he felt guilty. He's like he felt as though he couldn't do anything about it. You know, so there was that protective thing, although he didn't even know I was in in my sort of addictive state at that time, and neither did Maddie. They kind of saw it through some of my behaviours, but it's only when I then came in and it was open that they sort of felt that sense of, you know, they wish they could have done something about it. Um, do you think that can happen as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is this is part of the complexity of childhood sexual abuse, yeah. that inevitably, I mean... You know, the data is something like 70% of all CSA happens in the family context. It's the vast majority. And, you know, what the evidence shows is people who are abused in the family context are often then abused outside the family as well. So there's often not just one abuse, there's multiple abuse. But completely, there will be split loyalties because the abuse will be from somebody that's in the family that they care about. They love, you know, and so that that creates its own problems. Mm. So, you know, so then there's often this this notion of protecting the family and, the, the, you know, and, and protecting the abuser. That's that's really, you know, part and parcel of the complexity of unpicking it. It's not it's just not black and white. Mm. It's so much in some ways there's people abused outside the family context have other issues. I mean, it's it's all terrible, but they don't necessarily, they can be more 
they can go to the family for support in some cases, in not all cases, because families don't want to know that this stuff goes on. So then there isn't the support. Um, but no, I think there's you know definitely loyalty and trying to protect. And then there's this whole concept of traumatic bonding where the you know the the victim is actually gets bonded to their perpetrator you know we've we've we get this with um stockholm syndrome with the where we first came across it but it's you know it's similar within the family context you know i think um some some people call it a form of codependency with their abusers mm-hmm. you know and and families you know they're often very difficult dynamics in families where csa happens it doesn't happen you know in well there's often some you know issues going on in families Mm. I think there's something about it being a shared experience as well that it's just something that is is very complex in a way it's very hard to explain um but it's yeah like you say about I was going to say Stockholm syndrome that's something that came into my mind but it's um yeah it's and and one of the things you know from from the first survivors voices you know one of the one of the things that people abuse in the family were telling us about was how they tried to speak out, you know, they tr- often these are girls, as girls, they tried to speak out and tell their parents, their mother, this is happening to me. And they would just dismiss them because the, it was too hard for the mother to hear. So, you know, one, one woman who was writing in her 50s saying, you know, the first time she disclosed what her grandfather was doing to her, she told her mother and her mother said it's wrong what he's doing, but told her it in a way that she felt very told off by the mother and, and then carried on hoovering. And so gave no attention to the child, yeah. didn't really hear the story, sort of dismissed it, said it was wrong and pushed it to one side. So, you know, sort of not totally denying it, but really not addressing it. And the, the, the regularity with which that has happened in the, the, in the accounts that people have shared with us is, is frequent. Mm. You know, and it, it's, it, you know, that's the start of the denial. You know, that's the start of I can't talk about this. So mm. for those who are brave enough to speak up, then they're, you know, put, pushed down. And, you know, and that's that they're silenced. So the silencing continues. And I mean, that's one of the things I had, you know, we hope with Survivors Voices work is that actually as we take the reports out, it gives people an opportunity to understand the, the impact of CSA, professionals to understand, so that they can feel more confident to talk about the issue not as the happening, but as the impact, so that we can start to end the silencing of it. Because it's the silence. You know, everybody is frightened of it in a way. Yeah. The, the, the person it's happened to doesn't really want to believe it's happened to them. And then unless they can find a safe place to really bring it out and work on it, many people around are also denying it's just too uncomfortable. We just let's push it away. <laughs> Which that's the problem, isn't it? I think in in this country in particular is we are very we are very polite and very taboo around stuff like this, you know. And and we don't like to bring it to surface. We don't like to talk about it. And as you said, you know, some of the the cases show that even when the child has gone to the parent, the parent has kind of semi acknowledged it, but very quickly, you know, brushed it aside like it's just you know like an argument with the family. Oh, don't worry, tomorrow is a new day, and. I think we we need to now, and thankfully with 
with social media, the channels that we have, you know, the opportunity now to to do this, you know, to be able to talk about it and share it with, you know, with, with thousands of people. It's so important now for us to be able to turn around and say, okay, enough's enough. You know, you as 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 the as the victim, as the as the sufferer, as the survivor, you have a voice. And I always like to say this to, to people, especially for somebody who is listening now, you have a voice. You know, you have the right to speak up because although you weren't heard then, you will be heard now. You know, and it's your time now to be able to get this out there, to be able to to find the healing, you know, and the answers that you deserve. Because it's so important, isn't it, for, for, for people to understand that it's okay. And when you do, and here we are, you know, talking about this and, and showing you and giving you the examples that people have experienced this and continue to experience and they continue to find the solution and the healing from this. So don't be afraid. Don't be scared. And, and, and. Make sure that, you know, you, you and we will post, you know, the, the links and, and the videos and all the places that you can go to to be able to find, you know, um, the, the appropriate support. And I think it's it, it's really important, isn't it, that, that we that we get this out there and stop pretending that it's not happening. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, giving people the opportunity to share their stories is really, really important. And, you know, we know, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but we know that, that many people don't get to tell their stories because, because of the legal aspects to this. And, you know, many, many survivors do not go through the criminal justice system because these events happened so long ago, the evidence is often you know, not strong enough to make a case. And also because the criminal justice system is a brutal system, which could be re-traumatizing for many people. So it's not, you know, many survivors are not in the slightest bit interested in that. But you're absolutely right. Unless we can, you know, unless people can tell their stories, others won't get the opportunity to recognize, oh, I, I, you know, I can step forward too. But I think that's changing, Alex. My sense is that in the last five, eight years in the UK, that there's much more awareness mm. of CSA. I mean, you, you cannot now open a newspaper of a day without there being a story about something to yeah. do with sexual abuse. And, and I know from the survivors that I've seen in the counselling rooms, sometimes that's too much. They, they, they're not ready to, to, you know, to face it on that level. And then for others, it's fantastic. This issue is coming to the light. So I think it really depends on where people are on their, you know, their journey of recovery. Mm. Um, but definitely, you know, I think for survivors to be able to read other people's accounts is very validating. I mean, last time around, you were asking about the feedback from the, the project. Last time around, um, somebody wrote to me to say that, thank you so much, when I read some of those stories, I finally understood what my husband had been trying to tell me. So reading, you know, so he, obviously this woman's husband had been a survivor. He was trying to indicate what he'd gone through, but somehow reading these other accounts by other people really helped to get an insight. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that's fantastic, isn't it? That's invaluable. Yeah. And that may, may have saved a marriage or, you know, certainly brought greater insight, which is, yeah. which is huge. And that's, that's what we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. Say so again? I said it saves another life. Yes. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, which yeah. effectively for us, that's the most important thing, isn't it? You know, mm. it's that, it's that, it's creating that community, that tribe and, you know, that kind of ripple effect, you know, paying it forward, which I think sometimes we, we, we don't understand when we're so deep into the pain, into the suffering, into the misery, the shame and what we're going through, especially if you're in it at the moment, it's so hard to, to be able to, to see the benefits of the experience yes do you know what I mean but you know once you then go into that journey and you then start to realize that it's not just you there are so many others you know that have been through it that have the similar story that you know and because of that has opened the doors and and given more people the opportunity to to find that healing I think it's it's so incredible and, and so brave, you know, every person that, that comes through the door that is able to be able to share their story so that, you know, they then realize the power of their experience. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's another thing as well, isn't it? You know, that I, I think it's important for us to raise that. I think sometimes, you know, we, it's almost like we, the, the label victim or, or, or survivor almost, sort of kind of makes it sound as though they're not that we we're, we're doing this but it kind of almost makes it sound as though the person is not worthy or, or they're not strong enough but actually what I always love to emphasize is you are the most powerful person in the room you know your story has so much impact not just in one person but potentially millions of lives you know and, and that's the reason why you know we are always so passionate you know that I'm talking about the three of us about getting this message out there because we know you've seen the project that you do, the experiences that you've had to be able to, you know, you, you've kind of seen that, how it pays forward. And, and it's beautiful that to now see the, the strength that that one individual can have in their hands, you know, and, and they can turn that from a suffering to such a powerful tool. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, definitely, you know, there comes a point in all the stories, um, where in all the survivors' journeys, where they do emerge, they do come out of the darkness and step forward and just feel much freer. I mean, maybe you'd like to comment about that, Lucy, but I think, you know, some, some, some of our writers definitely said, you know, I emerged into the light. There came a point at which I'm no longer burrowing in the darkness. Mm. Some of the writers, my senses, they were still burrowing. Yeah, I hadn't quite made it out, um, but but that's when I, you know I think that's in the journey where you know people come out and then they start being involved in you know in in some form of activism and some sort of paying back or paying forward as you say, Alex, you mm. know, as a way to to give back, yeah. and, to, and to create change. You know, that's why the organisations like One in Four exist because you know there's a recognition of this of the trauma and understanding and and definitely a need to reach out and support more people to to, to make the journey through yeah yeah I, I mean just touching on what you said it, it was a long time before you know like you say I was able to step out into the light and it it comes at a time when it's you know least expected I guess it doesn't you know it's, it's a long time of doing a lot of um deep work and sometimes I didn't ever think that it was going to be any different. You know, I didn't, I didn't think that I was ever going to have time where I didn't feel so traumatized. And I guess doing that work 
um, enabled me to see that I didn't always have to feel like that anymore, you know, that it wasn't a death sentence as I'd viewed it for such a long time, uh, a life sentence, sorry, that's something that I was going to have to think about every single day. And doing the therapeutic work was what I needed to do to get to a point where that wasn't, you know, I wasn't waking up every day thinking about it or using some kind of coping mechanism to deal with it. Um just moving on a little bit, I mean, we're, we, I know we're, we're talking about the trauma and, you know, the impact that it has. Um, uh, what, how do you feel, how do you think that we can uh, mainstream this so that children are, you know, get, they have more of an understanding of this as a subject matter? Mm. How do you think that that can happen? That's such a good question. I mean, I think, you know, um, I know our charity goes into schools and does does work in schools. And I know that um, some other charities like the NSPCC are setting up ambassador programs. Um, and I think one in four is thinking of doing the same. But, you know, to, to bring in front of children awareness that if they've had this as part of their experience, that they will need to get some form of help. Sometimes, you know, in adult life, and and I think hearing testimony from survivors is just invaluable mm. because I think they, they will connect to it. Sometimes children can't, you know, if they're in an unsafe place, they may not be able to speak out about it, so they may, they may be protecting what's going on at home. So it might be the messages that, that, that sits with them so they know that when they're older they would need to get help. But definitely this is, has to become part of... You know the educational curriculum. The um, the charity one in four produced a really interesting book a couple of years ago called Whisper, which mm-hmm. was targeted at primary school educate age children, so um, key stage five six year old something like that, which was all about keeping secrets. So it wasn't talking about sexual abuse, but it was talking about learning emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, getting, you know, having conversations with your teacher, having task sessions around how do you feel when you keep a secret and what sort of secrets should you be keeping so that they can actually surface, you know, actually this is important that you speak out about these these things. But as we know, often children, when they speak out about sexual abuse, don't get hurt, you know. So it's a whole system-wide change that's needed. Yeah. And to achieve that, we have to break through the sort of endemic denial of yeah. the scale of it. I mean, when I give talks about survivors' voices, as I do, um, you know, to counsellors and, and other professionals, uh, I present data on the scale and they're often quite shocked. Mm. They really don't think it's as common as, as it is. You know, and, and the fact of the matter is that not all survivors will, will have, you know, significant trauma as a result of it because there's a range of different types of sexual abuse. Um, but when you've had, you know, full contact sexual abuse, that's very, very traumatising. Yeah. Um, so um, it, 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 we have to address it at every, every point in the circle, but definitely getting messages to school, you know, young children about inappropriate touch is really important. And knowing and helping children know that, um, that they will need help if this has been happening to them. Mm. And and helping children to know where they can go and get safe support. I mean, you know, Childline is a fantastic resource 
that now exists and I think is you know is is very valuable in this area. Um, but it's it's very complex because the children are living in their families, and if the abuse is happening in the families, you know, the the ch- children are sometimes taken away from families where they are where the, the child is being abused, and the abused child is taken away for their safety rather than the abusers, mm. who may be other children, you know, which is which is all back to front. So then the child will take messages on board that they've done wrong, something wrong by speaking out. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's very, it's, it is very complex. Um, but I do believe helping children hear messages about they will need support for this once they're older is important. I, I think it's really important that the, that the people that are educating the children are on board with that as a message though as well. And I think the problem is that at the moment, you know, like we've spoken about, there's such this taboo and it's such a, you know, is it, it's such a, the nature of the beast is that it does get swept under the carpet. And that's, that is what the nation continues to do by not addressing it. So yeah. what really needs to happen is that people who are, you know, adults are in a position to, to educate the children. I, I guess maybe they, they need to be educated actually that this is reality and that this is happening all the time. And there will be really sadly, there will be children in school right now who are experiencing this. Mm-hmm. And the complexity of that is that that's happening to them in the family environment. Let's say, for example, it's happening in the family environment. They, they are not going to, they're not going to want to disclose it because it, well, it's frightening anyway. And they don't always know that what's happening is wrong to them. But the added complexity to that is that the p- people that are, are supposedly protecting them are violating them or who, you know, whoever it is that, that's doing that. So that's why it's so, it has to come from the adults to, to the children, you know, the, and, and the problem there is that they have to be on board to, to want to feel that they can talk about it and address it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, we do send our reports into some schools where we, where we have access. We do send the reports into schools where there's a, where there's a receptivity. But you're right. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive shift mm-hmm. in understanding. But, but that's why I think the stories are so valuable because, you, you know, you, they're not an easy read, but you sit down and read them as a professional and you start to get an insight, mm. you know, and teachers, I've heard from head teachers, thank you for these because we, we know, we know it's been happening with some of our kids, but we don't know what happens next. Mm. And these stories show us, oh, this is what happens if it's unaddressed. Mm. Mm. So it gives an insight. It's, it's not the whole picture, but it gives an insight. And it, and it informs professionals because I think, you know, we go back to this topic. It's so unpleasant. It's so uncomfortable. If you're not, if you haven't started working in the area, you just want to push it away because it just brings up feelings of, you know, revulsion or discomfort or just not knowing what to do or say. Mm. And so that's why we just push it, push it to one side. I mean, I suppose. One of my hopes is that because there's more knowledge and awareness coming through, that we will eventually start to embrace it. NHS England, you know, they came up with a strategy last year 
around sexual abuse and sexual assault because they they finally got that it's a it's a major issue yeah. and and it, and it's a very significant issue because it's underneath so much other stuff it's underneath addiction and not all addiction but you know it's underneath a lot of drugs and alcohol and other addictive behaviors it's underneath a lot of eating disorders and the more that we you know lift the rug up and look at what's underneath and we face it bravely the more we can bring um we can help survivors earlier in their lives mm-hmm. to get appropriate help and support so that they are you know don't damage their own lives further and they're less of a cost to the, to the state which obviously is inevitable as a result yeah. yeah. So it's it's bringing this into the light that's just that this whole issue into the light that's just so important. Why do you think in the professional field it seems that people are still sort of, you know, kind of not so much shying away from it, but not really, you know, facing it on? Do you think there is like a, ne- a level of um, inadequacy where people just don't feel that, they can help? Is, is there a kind of element where they just don't want to touch it? What's the, what's the reason? Why are we not, you know, getting more more people wanting to be involved and in, in, in really wanting to change this, other than the fact that some of the stuff that we touched on? I guess, you know, the, the professional field is such a vast term, and, and I think there probably are some sectors of the professional world that are addressing this better than others. So I just want to caveat that. Yeah. Um, I think um, it's an uncomfortable topic mm-hmm. and and it's not very well understood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think by meeting survivors, which is what we offer through the film and through the, the voices, we help people understand that survivors are just like you and me. We're just ordinary people who've had an adverse experience. Yeah. So I think that's one thing. And then we can help provide people with the language and ways to relate. I think that's one thing. Um, I think that um, it, it's just such a, an uncomfortable experience. And I think one of the challenges I see is that there are many survivors out there who aren't that processed. And so I think what you sometimes find in services is you've got survivors themselves who haven't done their work. And so they, they want to remove it to one side because, oops, this conversation is bringing up very uncomfortable, unpleasant feelings in me that I'd much rather deny. So they're pushing it to one side. And we have to be a little bit respectful that, you know, that we have to go gently into the field, you know. So whenever, you know, whenever I need to give a talk or a training, you know, we would give a trigger warning because inevitably we're bringing material that there will be survivors in the room and, you know, it may be tricky. So I think it's, you know, it's a combination of factors, but I think it's possibly because there's a lot of it about. Yeah. And because for those who haven't experienced it, it's just that's too, you know, too difficult and too uncomfortable as well but you know when I do a teach based on survivors voices I teach uh I get I have the opportunity to teach social work students and mental health nurses and I you know I I, I say this is a fantastic opportunity you have now because you're you know they're, they're at the start of their careers so by bringing them this material helping them see and meet survivors through sharing the materials and the, the film um helping them see that they can really change lives 
by just how they meet the survivor when they disclose. That's the start by saying, you know, that I'm so sorry that's happened to you. Let me help you find the right support. Yeah. You know, but not denying it by, by absolutely saying, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Mm. Even if they don't know what to say, saying, I don't know what to say, but I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm glad you told me. Yeah. That's, you know, so we, we, we almost need to do really basic training with professionals where, where professionals don't understand or don't feel confident. We need to do some very basic training. But I think also, Alex, it's, it's to do with the scale of it. Yeah. You know, I hear anecdotally, you know, in some, some services, in, in mental health social work services, that many, many of the clients there have a CSA history. But because they've had a CSA history, there's also lots of other stuff that's difficult around for them. And so, you know, these, they are, they can be in some sectors quite challenging clients to work with because there may be other traumas on top. So we, you know, we, it's a, it's a big challenge, but it's a really important one. Yeah. You know, we're talking about people's lives and the quality of people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, um, you know, NHS England, you know, the government, you know, what do you think that that combined or even separately or, or even just us, you know, as, as individuals, what do you think we can do better, you know, with regards to not just kind of raising awareness, which is what we're, we're doing right now, but I guess from, from really having an impact because, uh, you know, a, a as we're talking about, we're trying to raise awareness in this and then really bring it to surface. But as we start to do that, and I'm sure you can kind of relate where, you know, we want to make sure that we have, you know, people on the ground to be able to deal with this. So these people aren't falling back through the cracks or especially as they're coming to, to you and to the services and to the charities already so vulnerable. And if we don't have enough of the support there, there is, there could be a, a, a chance that they may feel rejected or, or not heard, right? Because of all the traumas and everything else. So, what do you think we, you know, we can start doing, and and, and I guess the, the government and, and people in power can start to to make effective changes because this is a long term thing. Well, it's all, I, to me, it comes down to resources and and uh, awareness. I mean, I think once we understand the scale of the problem. And once we really connect to the scale of the problem, then and the, and the long-term impact, surely there, there needs to be funding that, that puts in place appropriate support. You know, and I think you know services, you know, small-scale services such as ours are really valuable to people because you know we have a we have an in-depth understanding of CSA and the long-term you know the long-term impact, and because we provide clients the opportunity to have help for up to two years, which is in many cases is not enough, mm. but it's good enough to get a start. You know, what, what, what is offered through statutory services is much shorter term work, you know, uh, 12 sessions of, of CBT or, you know, through IAP services, much shorter duration of support is is nowhere near enough to even begin the work mm. you know 10, 10 or 12 sessions we could just focus on stabilization 
so that we can actually help clients to manage their symptoms and help them give them a bit of psychoeducation so they really understand what the trauma is that they're dealing with but before they go into their stories that's you know that's the start of the work I, I mean really my vision for all of this is in the long term you know that we should have specialist centers where survivors can go and get really good understanding about trauma some psychoeducation as well as stabilization and then filter out into individual counseling support that, that can help they, that they, they can that help them work through their individual trauma but the other aspect of it and i think you know when we made the film i think this sort of came through as a byproduct was actually bringing survivors together and getting survivors to, you know inviting survivors to speak together about their experiences mm-hmm. you know, survivors are on the inside they understand, you know, what they've gone through. And, you know, and working with survivors in groups together is such a valuable way to actually, you know, surface what needs to change and how they can actually add to that. Um, and you, you meet incredible people, simply incredible people um, who, you know, are willing to share their personal stories. So I think, um, you know, Definitely resources are needed, finance, financial resources are needed, um, and, and a, a huge will to make a difference mm. because, you know, unless there's a political will to make a difference. And I think it's there in pockets, but I think, you know, I also hear there's lots of denial about trauma. So, it, you know, we've just got to keep pushing through the barrier so that more resources and facilities are available for survivors because they didn't set out to be victims of childhood sexual abuse. You know, they were vulnerable and they were children and these things happened to them. And then, you know, for them to have to struggle to get help in the, in the adult lives seems a double whammy. Really, that help should be made widely available at, you know, at minimal cost so that they can recover as early in life as possible so they can go on and live healthy and productive lives and fulfilling lives. Yeah, seems to be seems so. So in many ways, it seems very straightforward. Yeah. But of course, you know, we have to have the political will to make those shifts. Yeah. And that's where the voluntary sector, I think, is so brilliant because you know that that's what the voluntary sector does, isn't it? It comes in and sees the gap and just says, "Well, we'll get on with it." Yeah. You know. So you know, organisations such as One in Four, you know, we've been going for twenty years. We just recognise this needs to be dealt with. So we're we're dealing with it in our in our own way, um, you know, because at least the services that we provide means that you know over two hundred fifty clients a week get some counselling through through us or whatever the numbers are. Mm. That's amazing. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you'd yeah. like to add? No, I think we've you know we've covered a lot of ground, and it's you know, and I hope that someone listening today will you know mm-hmm. will it resonates with some people I'm, sh- I'm i'm pretty certain that you know there will be a few people that have been um touched by csa in their life you know in some way you know whether they've experienced themselves or someone that they know or someone in their family and to know that you know there is there is support and there's there's support from every angle as well isn't there you know yeah. if you've suffered some form of trauma there is there is support out there and 
to yeah. know that that there is a chance and uh, and there is recovery. You can get recovery from it. So yeah. I think that's 100%. a message they can take from yeah. this. And where can they they find more information, Clarinda, about one in four, and you know potentially getting some support if if they are a potential survivor or, or they know of somebody. Definitely. I mean, you know, it's just possible to Google the One in Four website. It's, it's www.oneinfour.org.uk. And then on our website, it's possible to just to apply to us for for counselling support. Um, and the, you know, the, the other services that we provide, invariably, we provide once people come into the service. So we, we know we run uh, groups psychoeducation groups for survivors to work through um, a book called The Warrior Within, which is a a resource that was written for our service by Christiane Sanderson. Um, And people can actually buy that online and they can work with that on their own. But I think inevitably working with a professional through through the stages is is really, really valuable. Um, and if they're not in the London area, so we've only got two centres in the London area, but if they're not in the London area, then the organisation called the Survivors Trust, that's another organisation to, to look at their website because they list all the regional organisations around the country where survivors can go to for support. Um, and there are loads of publications now as well survivors can purchase there's more and more information available um but definitely look on our website and and there are some forums that survivors can join um which you know i I don't know too much about them but there are havoca and mightyptsd.com they're also useful resources Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. And we'll, we'll put the links below on, on the bio so everybody yeah. can have access. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. It, it's absolute pleasure to, to have spent time with you and yeah. to have done this because it's so important that we raise this awareness, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And thanks. Thank you. Like, you know, to reiterate that. Thank you so much for spending your time and, and giving us an insight into the amazing work that one in four and you are doing, yeah. you know, to, to help just to get us out into the light and, and give us that opportunity for our, our voices to be heard. Yeah. And, and, and thank you to both of you for the, for the opportunity to come and, you know, spend the hour with you and to talk about the project and also to bring this out further through the Happiest Larry group podcast so it's been a it's been a great a privilege to spend the time with you talking about this work so thank you very much no thank you and to all the survivors you know you guys are amazing to you as well for mm. being amazing and overcoming this stuff and and showing people all the time you know that 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 you can do it you know and you really really can you know and uh yeah listen guys thank you so much as always for for listening being part of this journey this community the show um we will put all the links below so you have any access if there is anything you need from us always go to our website www.happyaslarrygroup.com and you can always email us directly lucy and i and we will be able to direct you we'll be able to help you wherever way that we possibly can and um yeah have a fantastic day afternoon evening wherever you are in the world and as always be amazing be fantastic be absolutely phenomenal we'll see you next time thanks guys